reading from the book of Job. Job spoke, saying, Is not man's life on earth a drudgery? Are not his days those of hirelings? He is a slave who longs for the shade, a hireling who waits for his wages. So I have been assigned months of misery, and troubled nights have been allotted to me. If in bed I say, when shall I arise? Then the night drags on. I am filled with restlessness until the dawn. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember, my life is like the wind. I shall not see happiness again. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jerusalem, the dispersed of Israel, he gathers. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, who heals the broken hearted. He heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. He tells the number of the stars. He calls each by name. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, who heals the brokenhearted. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. To his wisdom there is no limit. The Lord sustains the lowly, the wicked he casts to the ground. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, who heals the broken hearted. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters. If I preach the gospel, this is no reason for me to boast, for an obligation has been imposed on me. Woe to me if I do not preach it. If I do so willingly, I have recompense. But if unwillingly, then I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my recompense? That, when I preach, I offer the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Although I am free in regard to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so as to win over as many as possible. 
To the weak, I became weak to win over the weak. I have become all things to all to save at least some. All this I do for the sake of the gospel so that I too may have a share in it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, one thing is for sure, the uh, readings of our scriptures today match the weather outside, uh, if you look at it. Uh, In fact, all three of them do, at least at first blush. Uh, We have Job. Job is an innocent and upright man. We're told that from the very beginning of the book of Job. He's innocent, he's upright, he's righteous. He's a true believer. St. Paul is having difficulty uh, preaching and teaching. It's starting to wear on him the ministry that has been laid upon him to preach to the Gentiles. And Jesus is surrounded 
by the sick, beginning with Simon's mother-in-law and all the others that he has to, to deal with, to heal, forgive, drive out demons. It's exhausting. But it's especially Job, the book of Job. Job is an innocent, good, upright man, and yet a great deal of evil is going to fall upon him. Now, in theology, that section of theology is called the study of theodicy. Theodicy is the study that says God is all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, all-powerful, then why does God allow evil to flourish? Above all, why does God allow the innocent to suffer? That's the most difficult question for the believer to have to face and respond and answer to. At the same time, the question of unmerited grace, the Father who allows the sun and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, unmerited goodness, unmerited grace for those who are far from God. We are brought into the mystery of both goodness and evil. And there are no easy catechism answers for those particular problems. Thousands and thousands of books have been written by philosophers, theologians, saints, mystics, and the like. And yet at the end of the day, we are faced with two great mysteries in human existence. Unmerited suffering and evil and unmerited goodness and grace. I think that the approach to take is best described by the great existential Catholic philosopher of the 20th century, Gabriel Marcel. Marcel said that there are things in life that are not problems to be solved. They are mysteries to be drawn into. And in our highly technological and advanced age, we don't like that answer. Because we believe for every problem, there is an answer. For every difficulty, there's a solution. We just haven't quite got to it yet. But it is answerable. And so the notion of mystery takes on a kind of, uh, well, theological cop-out. When we can't answer the question, we say, well, it's all God's will. Oh, God, heck with that. Our eyes roll off the ceiling. You know, it's referred to as the God of the gaps. What you can't explain, you take and you shove the God card in there. He'll get around to it later. You just don't understand it now. Don't worry about it. Move on. Um, that's very unsatisfactory, as you know. But the question of innocent suffering in the face of an all-loving and powerful God, is not simply reserved for academics, for the theologians and the philosophers 
who cut their teeth on ivy-covered walls or high seminary walls. It touches each and every one of us existentially. It's a challenge to our everyday faith. Why? Why does a child born innocent, why does that child suffer? Maybe even be terminal. Why does our life end the way it does? Why do the best laid plans of mice and men, especially good people? And we ask the question, what do good people do when bad things happen? See, that's the better question. The question is not why do bad things happen, because the answer as to why bad things happen, I can't give you a catechism answer. I can't give you that answer. And nobody else can either. Because it's the great mystery of good and evil that's present in our life and in our world. But it doesn't mean it's without a response. And what I'd like to do for just a few moments is ask you to bear with me. And first of all, I'd like to invite you to get on board H.G. Wells' time machine. And I'd like us to be transported back to December 25th, 1776, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania where a beleaguered general surrounded by troops whose feet were bloody for lack of shoes, knee-deep in snow, no blankets, no rations, low on gunpowder. The future did not look bright. And a person who was a member of that ragtag bunch name was Thomas Paine, and he wrote the following. Bear with me, please, and I'll make the connection. Paine wrote in his classic work that in many ways reignited the revolution, common sense. He writes the following. These are the times that test men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in the crisis shriek from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly valued. 
Take the word freedom and substitute the word faith. The great danger is to be sunshine Christians, summertime soldiers. It's always the danger for us, see. And what, ta- what Thomas Paine is talking about here so moved them that George Washington read it, just as I read it, probably better, but he read it, to the troops. And he made this last comment, Washington, verbatim. I call not upon a few, but upon all. Lay your soldiers to the wheel. Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter, when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and country, alarmed at one common danger, came forth to meet and repulse it. And as you know, the rest is history. For that did more to advance the war than all the other things together. The stirring words, the stirring words, not to be sunshine patriots and summertime soldiers. And we are called not to be sunshine Christians and summertime Christians, which means we must contend with the problem of good and evil in our everyday lives and of the lives around us. I'll give you two examples, if I may. One is of a Catholic priest who is a saint, and the other other is a Lutheran minister who is also a martyr. Both of them sacrificed their lives in separate death camps in World War II. One was Maximilian Kolbe, a priest. He was in Auschwitz. And the Nazi troops, soldiers of that particular camp, found out that one of the prisoners had escaped. And they were furious. The commandant of the camp was, was, beyond, was beyond belief in his anger. And so what he did, he lined up 20 of the prisoners in the camp. And those were the ones, they were going to be slowly starved and dehydrated over the next three weeks or so in order to deter others from trying to escape. And one man among the 20 began crying and bewailing, my wife, my children, my wife, my wife. And Maximilian Colby stepped forward and said, I will take his place. And he did. And Maximilian Colby was given a lethal injection of battery acid in his veins. He was beatified by Pope Paul VI and canonized by Pope St. John Paul II. 
And the thing in both of those, the beatification and the canonization, the man whom Colby stood in for was present at the Vatican for both the beatification and the canonization of Maximilian Colby. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran minister, one of the great figures of the 20th century or any century, magnificent theologian, great preacher and pastor, and of his many, many books that he wrote, the classic, The Cost of Discipleship, is worth a Lenten reading. It's worth a Lenten reading and meditation. And in that particular book, he talks about cheap grace and costly grace. He says, we want cheap grace. That's the grace I give myself. It's Christ without a cross. It's a baptism without community and conversion. It's communion without service and sacrifice. It's forgiveness without reparation and penance. He said, that's cheap grace. But then there's the costly grace. He said, the costly grace takes place whenever Christ calls a person to follow him, he bids him come and die. Now, few of you, hopefully, maybe all of you, all of us, we hope, we will not go through Auschwitz or Buchenwald. We will not go through Flossenburg. I'm going to get to Bonhoeffer in a moment. But in our daily lives, we are called to die to ourselves, so that we may live for and in Christ. I think of the Father, who every day gets up and goes to work in order to provide care and protect his family. The mother who makes a house a home. Young people in their school and in this, this world and culture that we find ourselves, they stand for something rather than fall for everything. And they risk the ridicule and ostracism, the rejection of the crowd, because they hear that different drummer, and they must step to the voice they hear however distant or far away. And so they refuse to go along in order to get along. And they come to find out that there's something worse than being lonely or at home on a Saturday night or not at the party. It's to pay a too high a price for its attendance. And in time, they come to see the real value those are people who die for themselves daily. I think of the elderly and the shut-ins who daily pray. Pray for sinners. Pray for those who have no one to pray for them. The terminally ill who unite their sufferings with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a member of the Resistance Church. What had happened in Germany is that 
the Christian church had divided into two sections, the confessing church and the German church. The German church was loyal to the Nazis. The confessing church or the resistant church was the church that stood up against Hitler and Nazism. And Bonhoeffer had been invited to give a talk on German radio by the National Socialist Party, the Nazis, because they thought he would be safe, he would be a member of the German church. And his title was one Führer, perfect man, perfect guy. He went, gave the talk, and at the end he says, I want to say to my fellow Germans, we have but one Führer, and his name is Jesus Christ. The plug was immediately pulled. He was dragged out of the studio and sent to Flossenburg death camp. And two weeks before the so-called liberation of Germany, when the American troops went in to Berlin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was holding services on an Easter Sunday morning, it was in April, in the cell where they were confined. And members of the SS came in and said the words that every prisoner hated to hear. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, come with us. They knew what that meant. The prisoners started crying. Some of the guards had tears in their eyes because some had been secretly converted by Bonhoeffer. And as Bonhoeffer walked out of the prison, out of the, his cell, he turned around and said, do not weep for me. For me, this is not the end. It is really the beginning. He went to the gallows and was hung. And two weeks later, the troops entered Berlin. The reason I mention these two and all the others is that our answer to the problem of evil, especially to the innocent, does not lie first and foremost in the intellect. It lies in human encounter. It involves in encountering the one who is our Lord and Savior. And because of that, we live that in our daily lives. We live that, the cost of discipleship, because Jesus invites us not to cheap grace and not to be sunshine patriots or sunshine disciples and summer hallelujahs, but he, inv he invites us to lay down our lives daily, daily, in living for others as much as we live for ourselves. And with this season of Lent, and I'm almost finished, with this season of Lent quickly approaching, it's good for us to turn 
our gaze to the cross and the crucifixion because there is a cross with a Christ. It's not simply two pieces of wood nailed together because there was an experiment putting two pieces of wood together and nailing it and then making it crooked. It was the cross of Nazism. And that's what Christ, that's what a cross without Christ does. It distorts. It brings about a great deal of evil. It shows man's inhumanity to his fellow man. It does not bring out the angelic, it brings out the bestial in us. And at the foot of that cross, the Blessed Mother and St. John. This coming Lent and every day, as we face the challenges of good and evil, not as problems to be solved, but mysteries to be ended into, may it be said of us that in this, in this coming Lenten season and every day thereafter, we may be found with the Blessed Mother and St. John at the foot of the cross. And Jesus' words be ours. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.